Good morning, Cornerstone. This past week, Elise and I went hiking with some friends, and we were up near Inspiration Point just outside of Chautauqua. And while we were up there, Elise reminded me and the friends that we were with that this is the place that 19 years ago we got engaged. And I said, really, this is the place? I don't think I had been back, and so it was kind of neat to, to, to remember that. But usually what happens whenever our engagement story comes up is we don't talk about having nice pictures that capture the moment, or Elise doesn't talk about the super romantic words that I certainly would have not shared. I was so nervous. Um, but she talks about how I knelt in a cactus. I may be the only person that you know that when he proposed to his wife, found a cactus and knelt right into it. Of all the places that I could have kneeled on that hill, I found one of the few places that the cactus was growing in. And what makes the story even more ridiculous besides the fact that I knelt in a cactus is that I didn't even notice that I had done so and that I had eight needles in my leg for several hours. It was actually three hours later after we had gone out to breakfast to celebrate and we had called our parents that we went home and started to relax. And I, and I said to Elisa, I said, my leg is, is really hurting, it's throbbing. And so we, we pulled up my pant leg and sure enough, there were several needles stuck into my leg. Now, some of you that know me, you're just laughing right now and you're shaking your head like, you are such a, a weird person, Brian. But many of the guys that are listening to this message today, you actually can identify with me. I had adrenaline flowing through me. It was something fierce that day. The nerves were there and I was ready to commit myself to Elise and throw myself completely into this relationship and to be her husband. And so all of that energy was just pumping through my body and it disguised the pain that normally I would have felt. The guys in the room remember what that was like, that moment of proposing. And even if you haven't asked someone to marry you a decision that big, you know, many of you know what it's like to absolutely be so focused, to have such tunnel vision, there's no double-mindedness in you, you're thinking about one thing, you're so determined, you're throwing yourself into something so completely that you don't notice anything else taking place in you or around you because you're so focused. That's exactly what was happening to me that day. And I tell you that story because I want you to uh, begin to think in those regards of being so focused at, upon something that you begin to not notice the other things taking place around you. Because this is one of the messages that comes out of the life of Jeremiah. And so I wanna spend the second, a second week here in a row talking about some of the lessons that we learn of seasons of sheltering and exile from the prophet Jeremiah a prophet who lived his entire life during this season of pressure and discomfort and not having the things he wanted and having lost control, Jeremiah becomes an incredible example to us of how we don't just survive exile or sheltering, but we allow God to use the sheltering and lead us into new life. Jeremiah was captured by something. We'll see it here in a moment. He is, something caught his eye, his attention so much so that he said, I want it and I'm willing to make any sacrifice that needs to, be, needs to be made so I can attain it. I'm willing to be judged by others that may not understand what's actually taking place. I'm gonna be so captured by an idea that I'm gonna throw myself completely at it. Now all of this is in context to what God has been doing in Jeremiah's life up to this point. So we're gonna be looking at Jeremiah chapter 32 here in a moment, but I wanna remind you of a passage we read last week. A beautiful image of God saying to people just like us who are in a season of not doing well, wanting to get out of the season they're in, whether you call it an exile or a sheltering season, God says, hey, I have more in mind for you than just to survive. 
I have more in mind for you than just to be like the rest of the crowd. I have a great big story to call you into. And so the imagery we get in Jeremiah chapter 12 we looked at last week was this. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? I shared a little bit of this quote last week from Eugene Peterson. This is what God is saying to Jeremiah. Are you going to live cautiously or courageously? I've called you to live at your best, to pursue righteousness, to sustain a drive towards excellence. It is easier, I know, to be neurotic. It's easier to be parasitic. It's easier to relax in the embracing arms of the average. Easier but not better. Easier but not more significant. Easier but not more fulfilling. I have called you to a life of purpose far beyond what you think yourself capable of living and promised you adequate strength to fulfill your destiny. See, this is kind of this reminded message, repeated message that Jeremiah has been living with his whole life. Well, you let God call you into the bigger story. Now, in Jeremiah 32, this whole thing gets tested. Maybe um, more so than any other moment in Jeremiah's life. Will Jeremiah attach himself to what God is doing or will he let this sheltering, exile, suffering season determine his perspective and his actions? Look how Jeremiah responds. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse one. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. And so this is what it's telling us. Um, the Babylonians had invaded the southern kingdom of, uh, of Judah, southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. Only Jerusalem stood. It's the only place of freedom within the whole country. But the Babylonian army has now surrounded the city and the siege has started. Meanwhile, Jeremiah has been arrested by his own king because he's actually told his king we should surrender. It's gonna be the best thing that we can do at this point. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And so he's thrown into prison, but it's not prison like a dungeon. He's actually in a cell out in the open air inside a courtyard. And so within the courtyard, there's just business taking place. At this time, there certainly would have been panic and chaos, but there's people all around. And so Jeremiah is in a small cell in the middle of a giant courtyard, which allows for him to still interact, to speak, and to listen to others coming around him. Now, while in that cell, God says to Jeremiah, your, your cousin, Actually, many Jewish scribes believe it's his uncle, but one of your relatives is gonna come to you and ask you if you want to buy their land. And I'm gonna tell you how ridiculous that is in a moment. But here's the passage, Jeremiah 32, verse eight. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin, Hanamel, came to me in the courtyard of the garden and said, buy my field at Anatoth in the territory of Benjamin. Since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, Buy it for yourself. I knew this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field of Anatoth with my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and, weighed and sealed the copy containing the terms and the conditions as well as the unsealed copy. And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, however you say that, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. So here's what I want you to see. This is more than a land grab. This is more than a business transaction. This is more than a favor to a family member. 
What Jeremiah is doing here is he is saying to the Lord, I want to run with horses. He doesn't get to pick the circumstances. He doesn't get, even get to, to pick uh, what God is asking him to do. He only has a choice to respond to God in a certain way. And Jeremiah chooses to be a part of the bigger story. So for a moment here, let's think about what's happening. And I want you to picture how ridiculous this scene is. It's crazy to think about. So as I mentioned earlier, Babylon has invaded the southern kingdom. They're surrounding Jerusalem. Jeremiah has already been told by God that God is going to allow this catastrophe to happen. God has already told him he's going to lift his protective hand. He's going to allow it to happen. Jeremiah is in a cell in prison and he can hear the beat of the enemy drums. And he can feel the pounding of the siege weapons against the walls. And he knows that destruction is inevitable. And God tells him, hey, you're going to be offered some land. And I want you to buy it. And that land is not land that's just off in some secure place. But it has, happens to be his cousin or his uncle Hananel's land. Hanamel's land. Hanamel lives in Anatoth, which happens to be Jeremiah's boyhood hometown. Just three miles northeast of Jerusalem, not far away. You know what's going on in Anatoth at this time? Well, the Babylonian army is camped there. So the land that Jeremiah is being offered to buy and the land that he chooses to buy is right now in that moment being occupied by the enemy. The enemy is camped there, living off the land. His cousin's probably very desperate. He knows that he needs some money. The invasion's happening, and he's trying to get everything he can out of his land, thinking, hey, this stuff that God has given us, this promised land, it's gone now. It's completely gone. We need to mortgage everything. We need to mortgage our future. And he starts thinking, who's the only relative crazy enough to purchase this land? And as it is often in many families, it's the prophets. He said, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem. Jeremiah's in prison and I'm going to offer him this land. See, Jeremiah was purchasing an estate that was utterly valueless. He didn't know it at the time, but he was purchasing land that he would never plant, that he would never enjoy, that he would never walk upon. The world is trembling. Uh, the nation is in, in turmoil and chaos. And Jeremiah is concerned with the purchase of worthless land. Why? Hmm. That's the question I want to answer. Because I think what we see in Jeremiah's life of how he lived within the promises of God is something God wants each one of us right now, wherever we're at watching this message, in the middle of COVID-19, in the year 2020, he wants us to listen to his promises and respond in, such a, in, in a similar way. So let's look at some of the promises that God had made to Jeremiah. God's made promises within promises and he's repeated them over and over again. And for a very, very long time, Jeremiah's been living with promises like this. I will be with you. I formed you. I will continue to form you. I will be with you. You see the image we looked at last week of being in the potter's house and in the hands of God, being shaped by God. That's a promise. God will be faithful to his people. There's other promises made that God would prosper the nation and not harm them. 
that he has, a plan, he has plans and a future for them, that he'll never leave them nor forsake them. These are all promises. But God has also made promises to say, hey, I will do whatever it takes to the nation. I will allow you to go through whatever may come your, uh, your way to get your attention so that your heart might be turned back to me. In other words, God is saying, I will allow difficult things to happen to you so as to form you, to change you. These are all promises that Jeremiah has lived within. Now, right before the purchase of this land, God begins to make some new promises. And he begins to remind him of old ones. Let me mention a few of them. Before the suffering ever starts, he says it will end. See, that's the thing about exile seasons. That's the thing about sheltering seasons is God promises us they will always have an end. Every grave has a door out. Every sheltering season has an end. God begins to remind Jeremiah, tell the people this will end. It's not gonna be easy, but there will be an end to it. The second promise that we see God making to him is that the nation that will soon be scattered and all, all over, and many of them will be taken off to Babylon to live, live as political slaves. The nation will be brought back someday. They will be redeemed, purchased back. And lastly, God begins to say this. This trial, here's a beautiful promise of God. The suffering you go, th go through is not wasted. The struggle, the waiting, um, the sheltering, it's never wasted when we put our trust in God. It's always used. And so God begins to speak this new promise that someday there's going to be this new redemptive story for all people. I'm actually going to make new promises and new covenants with you. So God's t beginning to tell Jeremiah all of these things before the chaos actually happens. Here's what's amazing about Jeremiah. His perspective is in tune with God's promises. So whatever God has said will actually take place, that's what Jeremiah sees. That's what he's building his life on. That's how he's planning his future. And he, Jeremiah is on a pathway towards redemption and renewal. And that pathway would become an incredible gift towards the rest of the nation. He's remembering the promises. Let me mention the promises here. Jeremiah 32, verse 36 you are saying about the city by sword, famine, plague, it will be given to the hands of the king of Babylon. So God's saying it's actually gonna happen. But this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and in my great wrath and I will bring them back to this place and let them live safely and they will be my people and I will be their God and I will give them singleness of heart and action and they will always fear me and, me, and that all will then go well for them and their children after them. So that's promise one and two. This will end, God will bring them back. Here's the third promise. Verse 40, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. I will inspire them to fear me, which doesn't mean to be afraid of God like the same way they're afraid of the Babylonian army. The fear of the Lord means to have a reverence towards God, a place in our heart that says, God, you're different from me, a place in our heart that allows us to bow to him to submit to him. It's a beautiful thing to have the fear of the Lord. I will inspire them to, have, to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assur assuredly plant them in the land with all my heart and all my soul. So God has been saying this to Jeremiah since chapter 30. He says it in 31. He now says it in 32 again. He's reminding him of all of these promises. 
Listen, Jeremiah's investment in the land was an act of trust in God's future. Let me say that again. Jeremiah's investment in the land was an act of trust in God's future, in God's vision. Jeremiah is saying by, the, by purchasing this land that he, pro, he, he trusts in God's promises. He believes that God will deliver. The purchase of this land was a sign of a different kind of hope. A kind of hope that doesn't just say, I hope things get better, but the kind of hope that places all of its hope and all of its trust in someone else to change things. I think we all understand the profound difference between wishing things were different and having hope in God. There's a difference between wishing things would be different and standing in God's promises or within his covenants. See, this is the type of hope that says, I can actually have perspective and vision on the other side of tragedy. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of meeting someone that in the midst of their great struggle, their, great, uh, their suffering, mourning, they say, God is doing something. I continue to trust him. See, they figured out how God works. God works in the seasons of exile, and there's always these promises that will end. He'll bring us back, and he'll do something new. Eugene Peterson describes this moment this way in that book I mentioned last week, Running With Horses. He says, at that moment, Jeremiah bought a field on which he would never plant an olive tree, prune a grapevine, or build a house. A field that in all its probability, he would never ever see. Why did he do it? For the most practical of reasons. He did it because he was convinced that the troubles everyone was experiencing were at that very moment being used by God in what would eventually turn out to be the salvation of the land. See, he's trusting in that third promise that God even uses the terrible times for something new and good. His perspective, his future, his spirit, his attitude is all being determined by God's promises. He doesn't just think God's saying nice things. He believes that God will deliver. God's faithfulness creates hope. God's faithfulness creates faith in Jeremiah, and that's how he responds. Now, this is amazing. Because what Jeremiah would do, kind of in this, it's a public thing that's happening. It's here in the courtyard. We read it in the passage. But not everyone would know about it, but word would spread. When Israel scattered, and the day would come someday when they'd be able to come back home, I can tell you that people would sit around and they'd tell the story. Do you remember the great prophet Jeremiah? Who before the city was even taken and we were hauled away into exile, he bought land believing that God would give it back to us someday. See, Jeremiah's actions become a prophetic blueprint of how to live the bigger story for others. See, Cornerstone, this is why it's really important that right now we're not just surviving this sheltering season, but we're running with horses, connecting to the bigger story, because God wants to use your life as a prophetic message to others to lift their gaze and help them live different. He wants to use your life to be a plan. And this is what happens with Jeremiah, chapter 32, verse 42. This is what the Lord says. As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I'll give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more, fields will be bought in this land of which you say is a desolate waste without people or animals for it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. 
Fields will be bought with, for silver and deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin and the villages around Jerusalem and the towns of Judea. And it goes on and on. In other words, what God is saying is someday there'll be a bunch of people who are doing the very same thing Jeremiah is doing right now. He gets to go first. Let me ask you this question. You know, you can read through the book of Jeremiah and read a, a number of just inspiring, powerful things that God said to him and things Jeremiah says to people like us. Things like Jeremiah chapter three. Then the Lord speaking this through Jeremiah, I'll give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. That's inspiring. Jeremiah 31, I will build you up again. Jeremiah 29, mentioned this a moment ago. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. These are all beautiful, powerful things spoken by the prophet. But if you were to ask someone who knew what was taking place in this moment and just the years after when Israel would actually come back, if you were to ask them, what's more powerful, the prophet's words or the prophet's life, what would they say? They certainly, I think, would have said, you know, he said some amazing things. He gave his beautiful images like running with horses. But the day he bought the field, before Jerusalem was ever conquered and everyone was hauled away, the day he bought the field, that was God's most powerful use of this incredible prophet named Jeremiah. You see, a prophetic life is always more powerful than our prophetic words. They both matter. But Jeremiah is saying, I am all in. Let me transition here for a moment and have us think about all in in a different way, in terms of vows or something we call covenant. So, you know, a promise, uh, you know, dependent on the type of person that's making the promise can be counted on. But in the scriptures, there's actually a stronger word for the promises that God makes, and it's the word covenant. And the way you can think about a covenant is covenant, they are vows made between two people that join people together. And so if you think about where we experience vows today, it's usually at a wedding. It's the peak, it's the center, it's the climax of the entire ceremony where the two people pledge to one another their lives and they share vows. It's the only part of a ceremony that I tell the couples that, I'm do, that when I'm doing their wedding that it's non-negotiable. You have to exchange vows. Vows of faithfulness and love and understanding. I'm joining myself to you. I'm promising. And you know what happens when you, when you share your vows? You're saying, I'm closing all the other options and I'm all in with you. No matter what, sickness and health, my vows are binding me to you. And what's beautiful about vows is not just that it takes a strength of character to, to do something like that. Anytime young people today get married, I'm just, I applaud them for having the courage to make a commitment. But what vows do is vows create an environment, the environment that allows love and relationship to grow. You can only go so far with someone when there's always a way out. So why marriage is so powerful. You close your options those vows, that joining together becomes the space in which God grows love and connection and intimacy and oneness. 
So think of God's promises as vows. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Even though you're going through this, I'm going to bring you back. It will end. And when I bring you back, I'm actually going to make a new covenant with you. He makes vows over and over again. They actually get stronger. God joins himself to us more and more. Okay, so God makes vows, but we make vows. A covenant is a two-way thing between us and God. We enter into the covenant. If you've never said yes to Jesus in your life, it's beautiful. God is promising you things. He's moving towards you. God makes incredible adjustments, incredible sacrifices so he can be joined to you. And he says, turn to me in faith. It's what we call the gospel. It's beautiful news. It's good news. That you're so loved by God that he moved towards you. That he offers forgiveness and new life. And we simply turn our heart to him. Which called, the scriptures say we repent. We turn from the way we're going and we turn back to God, which is our true home, and we begin to follow him. See, that's a vow that we make with God. But we're meant to renew our vows. We're meant to renew our covenant with God. Not because anything else needs to be earned, but because we forget. We forget how God makes promises. We forget that God continues to make promises. But God gives us these moments in our life where we say, hey, I'm all in. Now more than ever. The light of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus, the life with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, it can't be emulated anywhere else. The world is offering us many visions. None of them are like that one. So I will go all in again. So Jeremiah in buying the field is once again renewing his vows. I choose life. Even when death surrounds. I choose courage. Even when people are terrified. I choose to attach myself to God and his plans. Even if it includes suffering. I choose to trust in God and his plans for my future. Even if it's going to be difficult to get to the place that he's going to lead me. My friends, this isn't the first time Jeremiah has been faithful where he's been demonstrating that he's all in with God. These things happen over and over again. But this might be the moment where it all comes uh, to this place where it's reaching its peak. To buy some land occupied by the enemy that you'll never ever walk upon. Amazing. See, this is the act of hope. This is what hope looks like. When you have hope that leads to faith, you close your options. You literally put your money where your mouth is. Say, I'm all in. You go for it. Even when other people looking around are saying, what are you doing? That that seems so weird that you would give up that amount of time to serve someone else. It seems so weird that that you would be a, a faithful servant to your church. It seems weird that you'd be a faithful giver to your church. Why would you be doing any of that? But all along, you know, it's because you are saying yes to God's plan in his kingdom. You're buying your field because you trust in God's future in the midst of chaos. And that is a powerful prophetic message that all of us need and the world needs. All right, I need to keep moving. Let me mention just a few other things. It would be a mistake not to mention that with Jeremiah redeeming this field from his family member, he was actually obeying the scriptures. And so um, 
it can be tempting for us to say, you know what? I'm going to follow God just the way I want to. I'm going to make vows to God just the way I want to. But really what we have is we have the scriptures. And the scriptures are many things. But one thing the scriptures are for us is it's, it's a guide in how we are to respond and to follow God. He sets the terms of the relationship. And so actually in the Jewish law, there was this, 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 this um, instruction that if someone was about to lose their land, because that land had been given by God, the promised land, promised to a family member, if that family member was in such debt or they had to sell the land, other family members were meant to redeem that land so that the gift, the promise, stayed within the family. So when his, his, uh, his relative comes to him and says, hey, you have the right to redeem this land, Jeremiah knows it's not just God asking him to make a statement about his future, but God is using Jeremiah right now in the moment to be faithful to something that God has already said. See, Jeremiah is obedient to the scriptures. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 25, starting about verse 23. The land wasn't just supposed to be sold as a prophet. It was meant to stay in the family as a way to show that God's love and promise was with that particular family. Jeremiah is not making up new ways to be a person of hope. He's not making up new ways to make vows to God. He's acting within the framework of scripture. Now, you and me probably will never be asked to redeem the family's land because uh, most of us are not Jewish and we're not in Israel. It's very specific. But there are many other things in the scriptures that God asks us to be obedient in. And this is the way that we say, I'm all in with you, God. I'll obey. I'll obey you uh, with the way I honor you sexually. I'll obey you with the way I honor you with my money. Those are two of the big ones. I'll obey you with the way I live in community. I'll obey you in the way that I won't give my hearts to other things, to idols. I'll obey you, God. When we do that, we're saying we're all in. Now, as I close, I want to connect this story to some more inspiration and the greatest story of redemption. So first, let me mention some more inspiration. Elie Wiesel, Jewish author, Nobel Peace Prize winner, concentration camp survivor, said this about Jeremiah's life as an inspiration. For over 3,000 years, we have been repeating the same story, the same the story of a solitary prophet who would have given anything, including his life, to be able to tell another kind, of, another kind of tale. One filled with joy and fervor rather than sorrow and anguish. Jeremiah lived the bigger story. He ran with horses. He said yes to God. Even when it didn't make any sense. Let me show you someone else that was inspired by this story. He was another great Jewish teacher. The wisest man that ever lived. Jesus, who is certainly much more than a teacher, but he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one and only Savior, the absolute essential one for every person. One day Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, the vision of God, the future of God. See, what the gospel does is the gospel produces the kingdom, the reign of Jesus in people's hearts and all around. And so Jesus always lifted up the kingdom. He said, this is the vision, this is the project, this is what you're to give yourself to. And look at the parable he tells one day, reaching all the way back to this incredible moment in Jewish history where Jeremiah buys a field. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. 
When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went out and sold all that he had and bought the field. How could Jesus say, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had to buy the field? Except if what he was gaining in the field surpassed everything that he was giving up. It's unfortunate that we live in a culture today that doesn't like to talk about the way we give back to God, the way we love God, what we're willing to give up for him. We spend a ton of time talking about what God's willing to give up for us, how he loves us. All those things are absolutely true. That message needs to be said over and over again. But there are times when we are asked to make vows to God, to close our options, to give him our heart and our soul and all that we are. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field when a man found it, when the woman found it. He hid it again and then in his joy, her joy, went out and sold all that they had and bought the field. Right now, during exile, during sheltering, God is saying, invest in the field. Say yes to the future. And as you do so, God will use you in a prophetic way to mark the way for others who so badly right now need hope and vision and purpose and love and truth. The whole world needs a whole lot more of that. How's God going to make that happen? He's going to ask his people to double down on the project, the kingdom of God. One last story, and then I'll pray and close out our time. A few weeks ago, uh, Elise and I attended a memorial service for a young man in Superior who just days before decided to end his life. And this young man, we, we knew his family. Uh, his dad was Cole's rugby coach, and Cole played a year or two of rugby with him in middle school. And so it was, it was just, I mean, anytime you hear a story like this, it's very disturbing. But when it's someone that's close to you or someone that you've been around or someone that, you know, you can think of, of their voice, you can hear their voice in your head again and you, you can think of conversations you've had with them and the family, you can picture their face, it's, it's really disturbing. And uh, the, the memorial service was amazing because the family wanted to make sure to tell the truth. And so they told the whole truth about this young man's struggles and they talked about mental illness. And they talked about learning disabilities when he was young and how he was bullied. And so all these things began to stack on top of themselves. And then the, this young man uh, abused drugs. And so that stacked on top of this. And the family did everything they could. They sent him to every place that they could, gave him every resource to help him recover. But with what's taking place with COVID right now and just the despair and the loneliness, it just was too much for this young man. And so they told that story. And, uh, you know, it, 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 was, it was hard to listen to. It was full of despair. I mean, I appreciated the honesty. It was helpful instead of denying what had actually taken place. But it just left everyone, if it would have ended there, with despair, turmoil, chaos, sadness, grief. The type of grief that has no explanation. But then a friend of mine, John Boyle, who's one of the pastors at Calvary Bible... He stood up at the end of the memorial service and he shared a message of hope, the message of hope, the gospel of Jesus. 
how God loved us so much that he sent his one son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to die for the world. And what Jesus does for us is he takes from us our very worst and he gives us his very best and he exchanges our death for his life. And he shared that message. And he shared the, all the other messages that come with that gospel. And one of those is that God does not waste tragedy or suffering or sheltering or exile or a desert season, whatever image you want to use. He does not waste it. The gospel creates life out of graves. And he shared the gospel. And I felt my heart lifting inside of me. I mean, I heard him share a message that I've shared a million times and heard even more. God has a future. For that young man, he always did. For his family, for you and me. First Peter chapter one, verse three came to mind as I sit and listen to the end of that service and I was feeling the gospel lift my heart and the kingdom of God give me vision again and give me energy to get up and keep trying even in the midst of something terrible. This came to mind. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You know what Peter's referring back to? He's referring back to that covenant, that promise that God made with Jeremiah that someday he'd make an everlasting covenant for all people everywhere. An end to exile, sheltering everywhere. Cornerstone, friends, I, I don't know what it is that God wants to say to you right now specifically, but I have a feeling there are some things that he wants to say, hey, can you give this back to me? Maybe that's certain land that you've given away and God says, no, no, take back this land, stand your ground. There are vows once again to make to God during this season. Do not be pushed away, do not scatter, but find your home and your direction in him. Let's pray. Father, I do wanna pray in just that regard. I ask for the voice of the Holy Spirit right now to speak to anyone listening that you, God, might be giving us the direction that we need to go, that you might be speaking to us the way steps of obedience that you're asking us to step in. What is it in us, God, that has been given away to something else? Where are maybe we unfaithful? Where are we not faithful? Father, we are so aware of all the things that you've done for us, the way you move towards us, and it's during exile seasons that we just wanna take care of ourselves and we wanna retreat, but it's during these seasons that you come to us and say, will you double down? When everyone else thinks it's crazy, will you trust in my future? My future for you, my future for, for everyone. Will you trust in my future? And so whatever it is, God, whatever vow needs to be restated today, I pray that it would happen. And for those, Lord, that have never responded to the, the invitation of Jesus, I pray that they might make their first vow to you today and say, I believe and I wanna follow and I wanna be with Jesus. Father, whatever vows are being made, I bless them in Jesus' name. And just as Jeremiah's vows were practical, I pray that they would be followed in our lives by steps of faithfulness. 
steps of trust, the practicality of faith that says, I'm willing to close all other options. I'm willing to go in all, all in on this. I pray that you would show us what those things are. Lord Jesus, bless your church with more than resilience. May we run with horses. May we live the bigger story. And may we do what Jeremiah did, trust in a present future that you're bringing about today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.